over the last few weeks we've been going through a series in a letter in the New Testament that a disciple of Jesus called Peter wrote. Uh, we have two letters in the New Testament by Peter and they're very helpfully called 1 Peter and 2 Peter. We've been going through the first one which is 1 Peter and we've reached chapter 3. You can find it on page 1219 if you've got a Red Church Bible and if you haven't, uh, all the best because I've no idea what number page it is in yours. Um, we've reached chapter 3, 1219. I want to do something a little bit different today and, and this is the deal, okay? Often when we read the New Testament, particularly these letters that we have in the New Testament, we find that the writers quote an awful lot from the Old Testament. There's 39 books in the Old Testament, prophets, psalms, history books, law books. There's a whole history there, really, of a nation, the Jewish people in the Old Testament. When we get to New Testament, a lot of the New Testament writers quote from the Old Testament a great deal. And uh, on page 1219, 1 Peter chapter 3, Peter does exactly that. And in verse 10, he makes a little quote here from the Psalm 34 that Jim read to us earlier. In fact, in five chapters in this letter that Peter writes, I wrote it down here because I counted them, he quotes from four different books in the Old Testament, 12 separate passages in the Old Testament and you can see all over this page there's little quotation marks. What is clear is that this happens a lot in the New Testament and if you don't have some grasp of how the Bible as a whole hangs together as a book, as one coherent story, it would be difficult for you to fully appreciate what's going on here. You'll read this and think, why is that in quotation marks? There's a little letter A at the end and it tells you at the bottom where it comes from. But you're wondering, what's something? why is Peter quoting from that? Why is that even on his mind? How is it relevant to the people that he's writing to in the first century to quote from a psalm that was written almost a thousand years before even these people lived? And what on earth are we doing in Rotherham in 2010 reading this letter from 2,000 years ago that quotes from a psalm a thousand years before that how on earth are we going to derive a benefit from that this morning? Well, what I want to do is, uh, we've, got, we've got a bit to get through. I want to show you, first of all, why Peter is mindful of this particular psalm. And then I want to just talk a little bit more generally about the Bible as a whole. And just two very simple points that I hope you'll be able to take away and apply to your own heart and life as you think about the Bible. Okay? So we're going to think about Psalm 34 first. So I want to talk first of all about the connection between this letter 1 Peter and Psalm 34 from a thousand years before. Psalm 34 was written by a man called David. And uh, he was a king eventually, in, in the Jewish nation. Jim read to us the psalm, and I think you would agree with me that it is a very happy 
an exuberant song or poem that he wrote. It records his experience of God helping him at a very difficult time in his life. And he realises that God has helped him and is helping him and his heartfelt, exuberant expression of praise to God comes out in this Psalm 34. When you look at the top uh, above Psalm 34, it says that he wrote it uh, at a time in his life when he'd fled to the Philistines. And the Bible tells us that he was very frightened of the king of the Philistines and, and, he, and he, he obviously sought God to help him and God did help him and that psalm was the result so I just want to spend a few minutes just standing back and just thinking about David and his life I don't, I don't know whether you know David many of you will, some of you perhaps won't um, one of the things that we try to do in our church is to really make sure that we don't assume anything and that means that people or visitors can come in and they know that we won't be talking up here somewhere, but we'll be explaining things and making it relevant and accessible. So let's just stand back and have a little think about David. God's people in the Old Testament had never had a king before. God was their ultimate king. But they pleaded for a king because they wanted to be like all the other countries around them. There was a prophet called Samuel. And he was very sad that the people were asking for a king. But God told him, it's okay Samuel. And he told him who to pick as the first king. And the first king of Israel was a man called Saul. At first he proved to be a great and a good king. But it wasn't long before his true nature began to come out and in the end he proved to be a reckless and disobedient king and God told the prophet Samuel to go to Saul and tell him that his days were numbered and that God had rejected him as the king of his people first king was a bit of a disaster God then sent the prophet Samuel to choose a new king and the man that God wanted to be the new king was this man David he was the youngest I think of eight sons was it and uh, three of his older brothers were soldiers and he was backwards and forwards taking supplies sandwiches and uh, keeping the sheep and tending the farm for his father Samuel came to the house and David was so insignificant that they left him out working the fields while the other seven sons were paraded one by one in front of Samuel and God says to Samuel it's not this one 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 either and then Samuel turns to Jesse the father and he says are you sure these are all your sons he said well there is another one but he's out in the fields he's only a lad Samuel said bring him in and God said to Samuel he's the one he's only young and Samuel did something very strange he got some oil and he dribbled it on David's head he anointed him with oil as a sign and a pledge that one day he would be God's king 
over his people. So what you've got now is a nation that has, still has a king, Saul, who God has rejected, but he's still king. And David now knows that one day he's going to be the king. At this point he's only young. What an amazing experience that must have been for David. He's a godly young man who trusts in God. One of the next episodes we see in his life is the amazing account of his confrontation with Goliath, a Philistine. And how with God's help he kills the giant. Very famous story, David and Goliath. And David as a result of that enters into King Saul's service. He begins to lead different parts of Saul's army. And God is with him. And whatever Saul sends him to do, he's successful in everything he does. His men love him because he's brave and capable. No one knows David's destiny yet. But Saul begins to hear people singing songs about David. Songs like this. Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his tens of thousands. And Saul, in his heart, a horrible jealousy begins to well up. And he begins to despise this young man, David. Twice, he tries to pin him to the wall with his spear. David eludes him. And in the end, very sadly, David has to leave Saul's service and go on the run like a fugitive in his own country. He runs to a priest who helps him, but he discovers that Saul's on his tail and he flees to the Philistines, tries to hide there. Saul slaughters the priest who has been helping him and all the priest's helpers because he believes that their traitors helping David is enemy. The Bible tells us that even though he's known God's help in his life already, at this point he is very, very frightened. And Psalm 34 that we read was written directly after some of those episodes in his life. David in the desert begins to gather other men around him and for a few years he's on the run trying to lie low there's some occasions when Saul chases him with 3,000 soldiers. Imagine that. The king chasing you with his army around in the desert. I just want to touch on one last um, story from David's life that will help us make the connection with 1 Peter. David and his men settled near a very wealthy uh, individual uh, called Nabal. He, he was a rich man. But he was a very arrogant and mean man. This man Nabal, he, he, he was an idiot. There's, there's no other way to describe him. You couldn't torture him. You couldn't rationalise with him. The man was a surly, mean, aggressive individual. David and his men settled nearby and they became very good neighbours to this man Nabal's shepherds and herdsmen. There were occasions when David and his soldiers protected them very good relationship and one day David sends a message to this idiot man Nabal who he hasn't met yet and he's been unaware of the good relationships that have been going on and David is basically looking for some help and sustenance so he sends a very polite message to this man Nabal and when Nabal gets the message he's like David who? who? 
Never heard of him. This is just probably some bloke who's rebelled against his master. He just needs a slap. Why should I give him my hard-earned bread? Tell him to sling it. When the messengers came back from Nabal to tell David what he'd said, David said, come on guys, get your guns, we're going to smash his lights in. That's basically what he says. Get your swords, put them on, we're going to break his knees. Blood, blood rushing to his head, the green mist descends, and he goes out with his man to take his revenge on this man Nabal. Who in some ways deserved it. It gets very interesting though because Nabal has a wife who's a very beautiful and intelligent woman and she realises that her husband has behaved yet again like a fool and she loads her donkey and goes out to meet David it's a very interesting story and she intercepts him and makes a brilliant speech you can read about it in 1 Samuel in the Old Testament she says, may my Lord pay no attention to that wicked man, Nabal. He is a fool. And she then proceeds to give David some very strong arguments. Somehow she seems to know what David's destiny is. She tells him that God is with him. She tells him that one day God is going to make him the leader of his people and the last thing that he needs is to have blood on his hands now. She effectively says to him, David, you need to remember who you are and you need to let your future destiny shape the way you behave today. Don't let your anger get the better of you. Don't take revenge. God will see to it that justice is done. You need to trust in him. It's brilliant. And David is totally disarmed. And this woman, the wife, Abigail, she goes home. David said to her, effectively, you're a good woman. If you hadn't come out here and met me today, I would have crucified a lot of them. He didn't exactly say that. He didn't do crucifixion then, but you know what I mean. He thanks her and sends her away. She goes home. Eventually, she tells her husband, neighbor what has happened. And he's so affected by the near miss that he's had that he has a heart attack. And ten days later, he dies. David later marries this woman himself. He's obviously very impressed with her. Now all, all of that's very dramatic. It'd make a great film. Very fascinating. Why on earth is that in the Bible? And how does it fit with 1 Peter? Some of you are visitors won't appreciate some of this yet, but I hope you will. Those of you who've been here the last few weeks, let me just summarise the major themes here. David has a great destiny, but it's not fulfilled yet. He's struggling like a stranger in his own country. His frustration and suffering is very real, mainly because of other people who are abusing him unjustly. Sorry. He is often afraid, but he's learning to trust in God despite his difficult circumstances. 
And lastly, retaliation would be understandable, but not appropriate. Those of you who've been here over the last few weeks, can you see any connections with where we've been in 1 Peter? If, if you can't, maybe I've not been doing my job very well. 1 Peter chapter 1, if you're still in 1 Peter. Peter writes to God's elect, strangers in the world, scattered throughout what we would call modern day Turkey. Look at what he says in verse 6. You greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while you have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. When you flick over into chapter 2, look at verse 9 of chapter 2. He speaks to them about their destiny. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people who belong to God. But their destiny isn't fulfilled yet. Because of their faith in Jesus, some of them have lost their jobs. Some of them have lost their lives. Some of them have been ostracised and marginalised. Their destiny is great, but it isn't fulfilled yet. And wicked people have pursued them and harassed them. These are God's people living in God's world, under pressure, suffering greatly. They're on the run. Peter even calls them in verse 11 of chapter 2, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world. Their frustration, their suffering, their pain is very real. They're often frightened. They're learning to trust in God. They've got a great destiny, but it's not fulfilled yet. They're Can you see the connection here? Now imagine you're Peter and you've got to write to these people who are being abused by the Emperor Nero. They don't understand sometimes what's happening to them. You're concerned for them. Your heart goes out to them. They're scattered and suffering. Strangers in their own country. They've done nothing wrong apart from trusting Jesus. But it's cost them greatly. These people are God's people. They're precious and special. Their destiny is incredible. But it's not fulfilled yet and their present circumstances are very hard. When injustices are done... I'm sure they were tempted to lash out and fight back. But that's not the way God wants them to live. Peter spends a lot in this chapter pointing them to Jesus who suffered and yet was silent. He went to the cross and yet made no threats. Where would you go in the Bible if you were Peter and you wanted to encourage these people, well, where does he go? He goes to this very story. Because what happens to these people perfectly mirrors their own experience in the first century. Isn't that incredible? Does that make you stand back and look at the Bible as a whole and go, wow, everything that happened to David happened to him for a reason. God was in control, even though there were tears. And Peter, a thousand years later, can use these experiences recorded for us in God's word to help and encourage these suffering Christians in the first century. Isn't that incredible? So when we dig a little, 
You could read 1 Peter and why on earth is that in quotation marks? What's he quoting from Psalm 34? What's that all about? When you dig a little bit deeper and you appreciate the background and the way that the Bible hangs together, it's incredible encouragement. And the whole teaching of 1 Peter that we've been going through springs into vivid life. On the other hand, you could read this and if you didn't really appreciate how the Bible hangs together, you'd completely miss all everything that we've just been talking about. You, you would miss the richness and, and the encouragement that Peter brings here. The government is very worried about our children being able to read and write when they leave school. Literacy massive hot potato all kinds of different schemes to make sure that when kids leave school they are literate it's a big issue in society but what about biblical literacy not ABCs and 123s do you know we live in days now when people in our culture have no basic Bible literacy. They have no understanding of how the Bible as a whole hangs together. We might say that people in our culture, this is a so-called Christian country, people in our culture are biblically illiterate. And do you know what the saddest thing about that is? That even people who are in churches even people who are in churches do not know their own Bibles. Sometimes people say to me, oh, now I knew my Bible more. Sometimes I say to them, maybe it would be a good start for you to read it. Maybe that's a bit kind of radical. For many Christians, there's a lack of confidence in the Bible as the Word of God. There's no sense of foundation or assurance in their lives. Paul, another New Testament writer, we'll come on to him in a little while, was very concerned about the maturity and well-being of his new converts to Christianity. Let me give you a quote from the book of Ephesians. He said this, then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. He just piles up all the imagery. He says to them, I don't want you to be children and neither do I want you to be like a little boat that's kind of bobbing around on the waves with no rudder. That's the, that's the picture that he piles up. What he wants for them is to grow up and be mature and to be stable, not blown about everywhere, every two minutes. He wants them to be mature and stable. I think the experience of many people is really, I have no stability, no foundation, no assurance, no confidence. Maybe this is a good um, picture of a modern day Christian. I don't really know. <laughs> what are the things that affect people's faith and confidence? I, I, I think um, 
for this guy. Some people are very deeply affected when bad stuff happens to them. Where is God when bad things happen? That affects people's faith, doesn't it? But I think the other thing is when so-called intelligent people seem to pour scorn on the whole idea of faith. I think the media does this a lot. Anyone who's a Christian must be stupid. In fact, anyone who has any faith must be very gullible, very stupid, need it as an emotional crutch. And the impression is, if you've got faith, you're a bit weak, you're a bit kind of unstable. And what, what do you do with that? We're bombarded by this. What happens if both those things happen at the same time? Bad things are happening in your life and people are telling you if you believe in God, you're stupid. You're born to look like this fellow. I don't really know what's going on. You are going to be like a boat tossed about on the waves. How do you cope with that? The answer is that you need to know what you believe and why you believe it. You need to have a firm grasp, like Peter has here, of the Bible as a whole. And I want to use the rest of our time then, just to make two points, very simple points, about this idea of biblical literacy. And I hope you can take these two points away and apply them to your own heart and life. Here's the first one then. Knowing your Bible... Just two points. The first thing I want to say is this. Knowing your Bible is a spiritual issue, not an intellectual issue. Okay? Can I say that first of all? What I mean by that is that this book that we have in front of us is God's Word. And unless God illuminates our minds, we'll never really understand it. It's not about being clever. It isn't about being intellectual. It is about God opening our eyes to see what is really there. It's his word and we need his help. That's why Jai prayed before I get up to talk. Because we need God's help to open our eyes. I think Peter is a good example of this. And we're just going to dwell on this first point a little while, for just, just for a minute or two. Peter, 30 years before he writes this letter, you, you know Peter was a disciple of Jesus. He was a fisherman. I don't get the impression from reading about Peter in the Gospels that he was particularly a bookworm. I think he was a pretty dynamic, energetic, working man. No nonsense. I think often Peter spoke without thinking. He was the spokesman for the others. When Jesus asked questions, he was always there, giving the answer putting his foot in it most of the time. He was your down-to-earth, dynamic, energetic, working man. I don't think he was... Um, he doesn't come across particularly... I don't want to be unkind to him. As a, as a deep thinker. I think it's also true generally as well that the first disciples of Jesus, who were eyewitnesses of everything that Jesus did and said, they were so slow to understand what was really going on. That's one thing that makes the Bible have a ring of truth for me. You know, if you were trying to write that, like some people say they did, 300 years after it happened, you'd show yourself in a better light than the Gospels show you. Peter himself denied Jesus because he was a coward when it came to the crunch. You just, if you, you, you think if these people had made this up, 
the, the guy who was the leader in the early church would surely be shown in a better light. It's raw, it's human. These men were slow to understand what was going on. Even after the resurrection, they still didn't fully appreciate what was going on. And Jesus has to reveal it to them. This is not about being clever. This is a spiritual issue. Just turn with me then to Luke's Gospel, the very end of Luke's Gospel, chapter 24. It's on page 1062. So this, this, is, um, this is after the resurrection. And Jesus appears to his disciples And it says, in verse 37, they were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. Jesus said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and feet. It's me. Touch me. I'm not a ghost. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of fish and he took it and ate it. He's showing to them that he really has risen from the dead. But look at verse 44. Peter's there. This is 30 years before he's writing this letter. Jesus said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. I've been saying this for the last three years. Have you been listening? And look at what he says. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms. That's Jesus' way of saying the whole of the Old Testament is about one thing. Me. It's all about me. Have you realised that? Moses wrote about stuff that happened his day, but everything that happened was pointing and foreshadowing me. The Psalms, they're all about me. The prophets, they were speaking about stuff that was happening to them, but it's all about me. Have you got that? It's all about me. Look at verse 45. Then, he, the Lord, Jesus Christ, opened their minds. Why? So that they could understand the scriptures. Jesus has to open the curtains he has to open their minds. He has to shine a light into their dark hearts so that they can see what is really there. It's like a blind man looking at the sun. You can tell him till the cows come home that the sun's shining, but until his eyes are opened, he can't see it. They're slow, they're spiritually blind. And Jesus has to open their eyes. Now, right at the end, they get it. It's all about Jesus. Jesus is not just giving them information, but information and illumination together. It, it already happened for some other people earlier on that day. There were two people walking from Jerusalem seven miles 
to a little village called Emmaus. And they were really confused. And Jesus draws alongside them. They don't recognise him. And he says to them, what are you talking about as you walk along the road? Can I walk with you? And they said, are you a, are you a visitor to Jerusalem? Have you not been aware of what's been going on over the last weekend? And their statement to Jesus is, we had hoped that he was the one. And now he's dead. We don't know what to make of it. Some of our women reckon that they've seen him alive. We don't know whether they're talk, talking gobbledygook. We've no idea what's been going on. And as they trudge along the road, confused, perplexed, wondering about the future, thinking about the past, Jesus draws alongside them. Isn't that a marvellous picture of life? Trudging along the path, Jesus comes and draws alongside them. Look at verse 25, it's on the same page. He said to them, How foolish you are, and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Didn't the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning what? Or who? Concerning himself. What a Bible study that must have been. Seven miles walking along the road with Jesus and he's explaining how all the Old Testament points to him. Later on that evening, Jesus suddenly leaves them. And look at what they say in verse 32. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road? They were nearly exploding. They were so excited. Their hearts were burning within them. Jesus explaining and interpreting all of the Old Testament scriptures and showing that it all points to him. It's not about being intellectual. It's about God opening our eyes. What happened to Peter after all this? Six weeks after this, Peter stands up in Jerusalem and preaches his first sermon. The first thing he does is quote from the Old Testament prophet Joel. This is what is written in the Old Testament. Then he quotes from Psalm 16. This is, this, what's happened here is all foreshadowed in the Psalms. He begins his first sermon by saying, this is how God planned it to be. It's all there in the Old Testament. All the way through the book of Acts, whenever Christians went to talk to people who weren't Christians, they would say to them, it's all about Jesus. Look at the Old Testament. It all foreshadows him. And 30 years later, he's still doing it. This rugged, hard-working fisherman has spent the last 30 years immersing himself in the Bible. He's been walking with David. He's been reading Psalm 34 and all the other 149 Psalms. He's immersed in it all and he knows that it all points to Christ. And when these people need a word of encouragement because they're suffering persecution in the first century, he knows exactly where to go. Why? Because he's biblically literate. Jesus has opened his eyes and he can teach them. And as he teaches them, God opens their eyes and their hearts are lifted. It's real and true and it all hangs together. 
what's the big lesson for us here the big lesson is that history is not random our creator God is utterly in control he's working his purposes out even though this world is broken and even though men and devils do their worst to thwart his purposes God is the sovereign Lord that means that everything that's happened has been part of his unfolding plan his character and promises are utterly reliable that means that we can trust him and know him and rely on him here is something solid in a world that is not what it should be and I, I want to suggest to you this morning that the very nature of the Bible itself is one of the greatest evidences of it being the word of God it is completely unique in the way it all points to Jesus and the encouraging thing for us this morning is that the same God who wrote it or inspired it is the same God who helps us now to grasp it isn't that incredible we have the help of the author himself to open our eyes and hearts so it's not about being intellectual it's not about being clever it's all about God and then we've got another point I've got too excited on point one let's get on point two I want to make another comparison for you. Are you still with me? Knowing your Bible is a spiritual issue, not just an intellectual issue. But secondly, knowing your Bible is crucial to your confidence and stability as a Christian believer. If you don't know your Bible, your confidence as a Christian believer will be wafer thin. We've heard about Peter, one of the other main New Testament writers. It was a man called Paul. And I think this is an interesting comparison there because Paul was the exact opposite of Peter. He wasn't, you know, like you don't to earth working man. Paul was an intellectual. And more than this, he was steeped in the Old Testament he went to the best schools he had a brilliant incisive mind and God spoke to him too and opened his eyes to see things that he hadn't previously seen we haven't got time to go into his whole story that's not the point of this talk but I want to take you to another place in the Bible where Paul says something incredible and this time it's in the book of Romans and uh, chapter 15 Paul is writing a letter here to Christians in Rome again we're in the first century it's page 1141 and I just want to emphasise this issue of the Bible being crucial so here's this very clever man and um, how can I say this if, if you look on, pay, on this page now you'll see at the start of chapter 14 it talks about the weak and the strong what Paul's dealing with here so have you all found it Romans chapter 15 we're going to look at he's, he's nearly at the end of this letter and he's dealing with the issue of disagreement between Christians some Christians think that they can eat anything I know Jai does 
We've got no food left in our house now. Some Christians think they can eat anything. Some Christians think that some foods are unclean. Some Christians think that all days are the same. But some Christians think that some days are sacred and special. So when you've got Christians like that who have different opinions about what's sacred and what isn't, how are they going to get on? Well, Paul says, you need to kind of respect one another and not just please yourselves. That's like his argument in chapter 14 and 15. Again, that's not the point of this talk. But when you get to 15, just look at this one. He's, He's continuing to talk about this issue. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. That's the big picture that he's talking about. What does he appeal to to support that argument? Well, in verse 2, he appeals... Sorry, in verse 3, actually, he appeals to Christ. Each of us should please his neighbour for his good to build him up, for even Christ didn't please himself. And where does he go to? What does he appeal to to prove that Christ didn't please himself? Well, there's another little quotation. He's quoting from the Old Testament again. From a psalm, 69, written again almost a thousand years before Jesus was even born. Paul could have said, do you remember that time in Jesus' life when he did this? Or did that? He could have used that, couldn't he? But he doesn't. He appeals to the Old Testament scriptures to prove that Christ didn't please himself. So, I think that's very interesting. And then in verse 4, he gives his definition of what the Bible really is. That's what I want to get to. Forget about all that other stuff now. Verse 4, here's Paul's definition. This is what he's like going off at a tangent now. For everything that was written in the past was written, why? To teach us. So that through endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. I think. I've got it there. There you go. Just know, so Paul's talked about something else but he just stops to emphasise the fact of why he's quoting from the Old Testament. And he almost does it as a throwaway comment. And this is what he says. Everything that was written in the Old Testament was written to teach us. Why? So that through endurance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have what? Hope. Hope. Everything that was written, all of it, is there to teach us. So that as we learn to patiently endure all that life throws up, these same scriptures encourage us and help us to live in hope. Paul, like Peter, doesn't want his readers to be confused or uncertain, but to live in sure and certain hope. I love that. What a description of the scriptures. It's, I was trying to think of the, you know, the, the, the idea that the scriptures kind of get underneath them and lift them up and encourage them. I, I, one of the things that came to my mind I was lying on one of those lilos floating around with the sunshine beating down, you know. It kind of holds you up. 
I was trying to think of all sorts of things that would lift you up. But that, that, that's the idea, isn't it? The scripture's getting under you and encouraging you and lifting you up. Notice too, again, that it's the gift of God. Verse 5, just at the top of the next page. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you a spirit of unity as you follow Christ Jesus. And then on the subject of hope, just look at verse 13. We could spend all day talking about this. This is a great verse as well. This is another fridge magnet. For those of you who are making fridge magnets. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. (coughs) We can learn from Peter that knowing the Bible is about God illuminating our hearts and opening our eyes. We can learn from Paul that that activity is crucial to your confidence and hope as a Christian believer. This is God's word. You need God's help to understand it. And all of it is crucial if you want to be stable and mature and filled with hope as a Christian believer. It's a bit unusual what we've done today, but when you get to 1 Peter and you see Peter and little quotation marks important from here and there in the Old Testament, now, I hope, you'll see those quotation marks differently. The reason Peter quotes in the Old Testament is because he knows it, he's immersed in it, he's full of it, and he knows where to go to encourage others. He doesn't patronise them, He doesn't tell them to ignore their hardships. He doesn't belittle them or criticise them. He uses the Bible to remind them who they are and that God is in control and that even though things are hard, God is with them and he will enable them to stand and to make it home to fully realise their destiny by God's grace. That's that's really all I want to say today. Your biggest priority in life has got to be getting to grips with the Bible so that you'll know God and know your own heart and be able to walk with him through life. And as you apply yourself to the Bible, God will help you and speak to you and teach you opening your eyes and your heart to understand it and you'll put roots down and grow and become mature it's crucial that's why we take the Bible so seriously that's why when we come to church I don't stand here with a Mickey Mouse comic or just making stuff up that's why I expect you to sit there with your Bibles open, checking whether what I'm saying to you is really here and it's not just my bizarre kind of imagination. The Bible is crucial to us as a church family. That's why we have growth groups. If you want to be a healthy Christian, you need to take advantage of all of these things. You need to be here 
praying that God would teach you and open your eyes and heart to appreciate his word. Can I say this to all of you, just by way of application, because this is where we've been lingering. Can I say this lovingly and respectfully to all of you, every one of you? Do you know there's nothing that would pain the heart of Peter or Paul or any other Christian leader than to see the people that they care for making poor choices when it comes to this and to see people that they love building their lives around priorities that will not help them to grow I can't say it any plainer than that if you want to grow you need to be here listening and learning all of us together I don't want you to drift like a boat on the ocean being blown here and there by the wind I want you to grow and become mature I want you to be able to say to me this time next year I'm a more stable mature Christian than I was on September the 19th 2010 five years from now I'm not doing my job if you don't say to me do you know what I've grown I know Jesus more. I love God more. I'm more full of hope. I feel more stable. I don't want you to drift. And the sure way to drift is to neglect the Bible. And if you want to grow, take advantage of the things that are there. Be at a growth group. Be here. Make a priority of it. Seek God. I pray that he would teach you. And last of all, if you're not a Christian I want you to realise something too this morning that this book that we have in front of us is not the mad ramblings of men it's the word of God a God who loves you the sovereign Lord who sent his son into this broken sin spoiled world to be your saviour The whole of the Bible is like a love letter from God himself to you, pointing you to Jesus who can save you from sin, from death, from hell and bring you into the living hope that Peter speaks about here in this letter. Are your ears open to hear God's word? to you may you realise even this morning and may it cause you to turn to Jesus trust in him so that you can live a godly life in God's world